good evening. Again, if, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Naman. I am uh, the newest staff on City Reformed. Uh, glad to be here to be preaching and sharing with you God's Word tonight. Uh, we have been going through the book of Psalms, uh, I think which is a very awesome and amazing book to go through is this collection of, of songs that the Israelite people had. Uh, much like songs today, will speak into almost every single human emotion, every single human experience, uh, and encapsulate it into beautiful and wonderful poetry and, and all of these things. So we uh, conclude our series here on Psalms and, and our time here in this building, remember, remembering God's faithfulness and His sovereignty in Psalm 72, which I think is, is very poignant as we think about uh, kingship, as we think about authority. Um, so I will read this passage for us, and as is tradition in our church and denomination, after I read, I will lead us in the part of the, the leader at the bottom there on the, page five, if you would respond with the part of the people. Psalm 72. God, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call, call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Um, so yeah, we come to this psalm, here in this psalm book, uh, and throughout is. Israelite culture, there were all different types of psalms, psalms of lament, psalms of praise and thanksgiving, and we come to a, a particular genre of psalm that is called a royal psalm. And so before I lose your attention right there, royal may, may seem like a, a foreign topic because today we don't know how to relate to kings anymore. I mean, it seems like the very foundations of this country were born off of fleeing from tyrannical rule and monarchies. So this idea of kingship and a, and a good king is, is very foreign, very distant from us. So before I lose your attention there, I just want to make this note to say that kingship is actually a very prevalent topic for today, for a modern society, as we think about not only kings or, or people in leadership, but authority 
in general, as we think about power, how it's wielded, how it's used. And the reason why we might feel distant towards kingships, towards monarchies, towards this idea of authority is because a lot of modern culture and society will tell us that the exact opposite. Like, to, to do those things, to flee from those things, to not bow down to kingship, that you are your own king. That you have your own authority, you have your own power, you have your own freedom to do whatever you want with your resources, your time, your money, your efforts. And so oftentimes when we look at people uh, in, powers of, in positions of power and authority, we, we grow suspicious because oftentimes that power is abused. But that's not to say to flee from kingship altogether, as society will tell us, but actually to redefine it, to look at authority and kingship in a different way. And so this is where we land in Psalm 72, royal psalms that would have been sung and recited throughout Israelite culture. Yes, they had a monarchy. Yes, they had kings in their times, but just as prevalent back then as it is today. How do we redefine authority and power? How do we view these different entities and systems of power? The, the question that I put there in the outline is, how do we relate to authority in the everyday, whether external or self-imposed? When we think about the law, when we think about police or governing authorities, when we think about our parents, for those of you who relate to your parents or our parents to your children, how, do, how does authority and power play out in that dynamic? In the workplace or in school, whether it's with your bosses or your, your supervisors or your professors, Power is, is wrought all throughout our everyday life, whether we like it or not. And so this idea is not to flee from it altogether, but to embrace it and to redefine what true kingship and authority looks like. So we'll do that today by looking at this psalm in three different ways. We'll look at uh, who, the, who the psalmist was talking about as the ideal king, what an ideal king looks like, what their actual king looked like, and lastly, what the true king should look like and who the true, true king is. The ideal king, the actual king, and the true king. So first we'll start with this picture of an ideal king. Um, as I was reading the psalm, it's, it's filled with these qualities, these characteristics, a checklist of so many different things that a good king, an ideal king should be. And so I'm going to highlight some of the big broad ones and give some practical examples that we could relate to uh, with these topics. The first one being justice. Uh, if you would read back with me, turn your attention to the scripture passage starting in verse one, 1 and 2. Give God, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge the, your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Jumping a little bit down to verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And wrapping up with, in verses 12 and 13. For he delivers the needy when he calls, <clears throat> the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Uh, this point of justice being a characteristic of, of, a good, of an ideal king is actually pretty in line with what we've been preaching. Dave actually preached the last two weeks on, on justice, on earthly justice, divine justice, and how justice should be played out here uh, in our everyday a justice free of bias and partiality. A justice that calls us to rec rescue those in need when we do have the power to do so. That this rescue theme is found throughout the Bible. Uh, enacting justice when we have the power to. And essentially saying that passivity is actually a form of injustice. So at the very least, a, an ideal king would enact justice and define what is right and wrong 
But what I also want to bring our attention to while looking at these verses is that justice is tied very closely in this psalm with also this idea of righteousness. And as we think about righteousness as it's defined in the, in the Bible, righteousness is this right standing with God. That we can be in the same communal space that God is, that we are deemed holy just as God is. And so justice is an effort to bring us back to that righteousness. Justice is an effort to bring us back to the way that God intended things to be. Um, I was sitting at home the other night, and there was a knock on my door, and, then, and my neighbor, my, my neighbor across the street, not Matt, Matt, Matt lives right next to me, um, my neighbor across the street knocks on our door, he said, hey, uh, I noticed that you have this huge skid mark on the, on the side of your car. Did you notice it before? I did it, so I rushed out to, to see it with him, and we were investigating, and there was, uh, right alongside the rear fender, was just kind of this huge white skid mark, and somebody, obviously, it hit and ran, and I was just kind of bubbling up inside. I was containing all of my anger because I was still in the presence of, of my neighbor. Um, but this, th- this wasn't the first time that I've experienced something like this, whether here in Pittsburgh or in Boston. Uh, and this is one of those things that really irks right on, underneath my skin, where I was like, how could you do that and just not at least leave a note to your license, your insurance, something? So what did I do immediately after? I rushed inside. I hopped on my computer and I started Googling dash cam cameras, like things that, cameras that will uh, last overnight and, and be activated with night vision and motion detectors so I can catch whoever does this the next time so I don't fall to this injustice again. It's a very silly example, but we can all relate to it in some way. We can all relate to justice and particularly injustice, and more particularly if it's done to us, in a very real and human way. So it's, it's no wonder that justice is such an important quality of, of a king, of somebody who has responsibility, of somebody who's meant to rule over millions and millions of people. Justice, this idea of bringing us back to righteousness, bringing us back to God, bringing us back to the way that he intended to be. It's very quick. We can, Dave spent two full sermons on justice alone, but that's just a broad stroke on it. And the next topic that we'll move on to is flourishing. If we'll go back to the passage starting in verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verses 6 and 7. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. And lastly in verse 16. May May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. Flourishing. An ideal king is meant to exude and promote flourishing of the nation that he is a part of. So when we read things like rain falls on the mown grass, we we get a picture of what that's supposed to look like. And actually, when the psalmist says that he wants prosperity to be on the mountaintops, that's actually a very absurd thing to ask for. If you're speaking to uh, an average Israelite at the time who would have been a farmer or in some sort of agricultural background, they would know that the last place you want to plant seeds is on the top of a mountain. The soil is terrible. The climate is, is not conducive for growth. So what the psalmist is talking about in flourishing is not just for things to grow and and be healthy, but things to thrive, things to to grow in a supernatural way, 
of flourishing to happen in a way that only a king, an ideal king, can provide. <clears throat> I mentioned last week that I had my first uh, full and true Western Pennsylvanian experience in the, at the Hayride. Um, and that same weekend, Daniel Snoke uh, brought me on another Western PA experience uh, by bringing me to Sheets. Um, so it was really late at night. We were coming home from a CCO event, and we were with a bunch of college students, and, and of course they wanted to, to grab some really greasy food, so he brought me to Sheets. I don't have Sheets where I'm from. We, we, the equivalent to that is 7-Eleven. I don't know if you guys have heard of 7-Eleven. And I was actually reading an article on 7-Eleven, um, and actually 7-Elevens in Japan are very different from what we might see here in America. 7-Elevens in, in Japan are a place where you can pay utility bills, where you can buy concert tickets and make photocopies along with buying hot dogs and, and drinks and chips and stuff. Uh, in light of the 2011 tsunamis, they've become emergency support centers and have trained their employees to learn how to aid survivors during a tsunami. And then in 2016, the entire country of Japan realized that their ratio of, the, of their population that was over the age of 65 was one in four. But by 2035, it was going to become one to three. So there's going to be more elderly people in their country. So what did they do? They stocked their 7-Elevens with higher quality, healthier food, more household items like light bulbs and, and, and fixtures, offered home delivery services, created more seating rooms so that the elderly can come and socialize and practice their karaoke skills. Huh? From a 7-Eleven. Um, and why do I bring up this example? Of like, this is just a very small picture of what it could look like if a very small entity or a very small store could serve the greater needs of the community around them, was really focusing on the needs of the common good, of true flourishing from a 7-Eleven, <laughs> lo and behold. Flourishing, a quality of living that promotes not just self-interests or this drive for ambition and self-success, but how we begin to uh, consider the mutual good of everybody else around us, of those who are on the margins especially, the elderly, the poor, the marginalized, children. A way of life where mutual welfare is a foundation, a way of life in which God originally intended to be. Kind of like justice, bringing us back to the way God intended things to be. And lastly, I want to bring up one more quality is the far-reaching breadth and, and scope of an ideal king. If you'll read with me, starting in verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And lastly, in verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations called him blessed. Far-reaching breath, a scope uh, that is beyond the eye can see. So when this passage says, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, it's much like, uh, as, as Americans would sing, from, from sea to shining sea in America the Beautiful. Of this, the furthest scope that you can possibly imagine this king having, that kings and tribes and people from all different nations would come and pay him tribute to want to visit him, to want to see him in person. A king that would have influence, not just over his own people, but over his neighboring countries, over the nations from around the world. 
This kingdom would be attractive, magnetic, charismatic in that sense. And we, we, we get a little bit of an idea like this today. Um, have, has anybody kind of come in close encounter with a celebrity or have seen a celebrity like really up close? There was one time I was on a plane uh, to the Bahamas with my family on vacation and there was all this commotion in first class as people were coming in and boarding the plane and like obviously something was going on and we were like asking people as they were coming by like, hey, what's going on? Uh, and they're like, there's a celebrity in first class and, and after a couple more people passed by us, we're like, well, who's up there? And they were like, Sean Connery is up there. Uh, this was back probably in 2005 or six. So um, Sean Connery was there, and my parents were like diehard fans of James Bond. They had all the VH, VHS tapes of, of his movies. And there was all this commotion. People were, were like crowding. They were like going to the bathroom. Even they were sitting in the back. They were going to the bathroom all the way in the front just to catch a glimpse. And, and I was, uh, I think I was a freshman or sophomore in high school at the time, and I, I, I couldn't help myself. I, I moved up front, I was pretending like I was gonna ask for something from the student attendants, and on my way back, I saw him sitting there by the window. He just kind of slouched there, he was, he was really old at that time, by now. But, like, I could just picture this 007 aura and, and just kind of light that was beaming off of him. He didn't say anything, he didn't look at me, but I could, it was tangible, it was palpable as I was walking by him. And, I, and I've had many brushes with celebrities from, from time to time, and it, each time I feel like a little kid, each time I feel like I'm, I'm just in a different sphere, like this out-of-body experience that I have. And as silly as it is, that's just a small glimpse of this magnitude, of this depth, of this scope that this king is supposed to have. That he's supposed to attract people from, from all different backgrounds, from all nations, from all tongues, all tribes. And they, they would want to come just to catch a glimpse of him, just to sit at his feet. A king that is just, a king uh, that has far-reaching breath, and a king that promotes flourishing. That's a really tall order as we think about anybody who could fulfill that type of kingship. Uh, a little bit more context into this psalm, uh, the, the little prescript there under Psalm 72, it says, of Solomon, and many scholars will say that David, King David, wrote this psalm for his son Solomon uh, in hopes uh, of a blessing of, of Solomon's kingship and his reign to follow him. And so you can see that, that David has a lot of hopes for his son. Uh, Israel is going through a very prosperous time under his, under his rule, and he's wanting more of the same for his son Solomon. Um, and Solomon actually, to his credit, fulfilled a lot of those things. Uh, if you think about justice, we know all the stories about, about Solomon's wisdom, like the episode that we find with uh, Solomon, who's confronted by these two mothers, and, and the, the baby has, has died, and somebody, one of the mothers has rolled over their child in the middle of the night, and, and Solomon is trying to figure out, uh, they're both, both mothers are claiming who this baby is, and he's trying to figure out who the true mother is. So we see him enact wisdom in that way, and that sort of wisdom was wrought all throughout his kingship. Justice, right and wrong. We see flourishing happening in his reign. In its history, Israel gained its highest wealth during his reign, and he was the wealthiest Israelite king. The infrastructure that he, he changed, he built Israel's temple. It was a place of worship that also housed the very presence of God. 
He was also involved in other areas of Israel's infrastructure where he was able to create plenty of water supply for the city and military defense for the city as well. And so, in the Israelites' day, as they, as they view this ideal picture of a king in Psalm 72, and they look at Solomon, man, that's the closest that they were going to get. They had it pretty, pretty well with him. But what happened to Solomon as we continue to read scripture? Did he in Israel live happily ever after? Sadly, no. Contrary to the very commands of God himself, Solomon multiplies himself gold by enacting a tax upon the people. He multiplies himself horses and and amasses this large army, essentially distrusting uh, the hand of God as as Israel goes out to battle. And he has over 700 wives and 300 concubines. At the same time, he he amasses all these foreign deities, deities that were imported from his wives and concubines into Jerusalem, and it's created this mass opportunity for idolatry for the people as well. The result of Solomon's reign is the split of the Israel's nation, of the kingship. A huge downfall. A lineage of kings that would continue in this pattern of sin, of idolatry, of thinking that they could enact power correctly themselves without the help of God. And so as we talked about before, as we're trying to sanitize this idea of kingship, of authority, it's it's difficult to do so because cultural notions will tell us be yourself. DIY, do it yourself. Um, as I was driving around in Boston, there were plenty of New Hampshire people driving around, and their motto on their license plate says, live free or die. Have it your way. I don't know if you're a fan of Burger King, but um, that's their motto, have it your way. We're constantly inundated with messages of, of people telling us, don't relent to any sort of power or authority. You are your own king. You sit on your own throne. And so I asked us the question is, what are our thrones that we sit on today, tonight? What are the spheres of influence that we try to enact with our friends, with our neighbors, with our loved ones, with with people around us, our enemies? Letting somebody else be king means that we lose all sense of personal freedom. And it seems to be the cardinal sin of today's society. A couple years ago, um, there was an app that was made uh, that sort of mapped out the entire New York City subway map system. And if you've ever been to New York or, or seen the New York City subway system, it's intricate, it's complex. The schedules are, you, you need like, you need to take a couple classes um, in a master's program just to kind of get it down. And so there was an app that allowed you to change where stations were and change how routes went. Uh, and it sort of like plugged into this idea of how do you think the New York City subway system would be more efficient in your idea? And so I asked that question, like, how do we, in our, own, in our own thrones, think of ways that we think, man, if I did that, I think I, would, I could do it 10 times better. Or we would, get this so much, we would get this done so much quicker if we could just tweak it this way. Or all these different things come up when, when we start to wield power from our own thrones and from our own influence. We are all kings in that sense, as society tells us. What is your throne? What do you have dominion over? So the actual king that Israel gets and the actual king that we get in our own lives, ourselves, falls very short of what Psalm 72 is calling for. And so who is this true king and and where um, do we find the true king? 
I'll turn your attentions to verse 12 again. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. A good king, the true king, sees the lives of his people as precious, protects them from violence, from injustice, promotes flourishing, has a far-reaching breath that beyond the eye can see, and he sees the blood of his people precious in his sight. So precious that he would deem his own not as precious, to give it up. That we see on the cross that justice was truly fulfilled, that it was brought us fully back to the righteousness that God intended us to be. That through his reign we see flourishing as the rain falls on the mown grass. That people from all tribes and tongues and nations would one day come and profess that he is Lord and King. The ideal king, the true king that Psalm 72 calls for is from the very line of Jesse. David was not far off, but it, it took a couple hundred, a couple of centuries to realize who it was, and it was in God himself, in Jesus Christ. So much so that he did not consider his own blood precious to that of his people. So I ask us, when we think about our thrones, when we think about our own kingdoms, how small they may be or how big you think they might be, have we lost sight of Christ as king? Oftentimes, Jesus is a great prophet. He teaches us so many things. He, he shows us many things in Scripture that, that speak to God's will and, and proper commands. We see Jesus as the priest who mediates for us, who is this great counselor who listens to us and embraces us in times of suffering. Whatever your idea may be, have we lost this idea of Jesus as king? Have we lost this idea of kingship altogether and what it looks like for Christ to actually rule our lives? That we get to sanitize this idea of kingship away from tyranny, away from oppression, away from manipulation and abuse. But Christ restores kingship in its full original intent to bring us back to God so that we could be ruled freely so that we may feel more freedom, in fact, by being ruled by Christ himself. So that's the picture of a true king that I want, us, want to leave us with to, as we leave even this building, as we go on into Greenfield, as we think about the ministries that we're part of, as we think about the kingdom of God here in Pittsburgh, what are ways in which we can think about Christ as the king of that kingdom? And how do we relent to his true and authentic authority? Let me pray for us.